All right, let's jump back in tonight, and I'm going to try to give you back at least a little bit of time. And First uh, John chapter two, verses twelve through fourteen, considering children, young men, and fathers, we see John writing, contending for the faith to those that he knows are of the faith, and he's contending against a form of early Gnosticism that has lifted its head up uh, in excuse me <coughs> that has lifted its head up here in the ancient Near East and is proclaiming kind of two major tenets of its philosophy. And one would be that the body and the spirit are two completely separate entities that really have no commonality. The spirit is holy and righteous and good, and the body is sinful and fallen and bad, and that there is some kind of secret knowledge that allows someone to come to salvation. It's fun. It's funny, it's, it's a little bit, um, it, there are some overtones of what would eventually become modern Catholicism and Greek Orthodoxy in that there is this secret knowledge that we've got down here locked away in a temple and if you come and act right, we'll give you a little and you can be saved. John writes against that proclaiming the message of the gospel that was manifest in the Christ who we saw and heard and touched, who was from the beginning across time and even down to us in order that we might have fellowship with him. And not fellowship that's based off, you know, sinless perfection and legalism or this idea that, you know, if God is glorified through forgiving sin, then go out and sin all the more that grace may abound, which Paul would say not being to, but instead a fellowship that is based on a relationship of abiding in in Christ and abiding in the Father. As a matter of fact, abiding in Christ in the same manner after which Christ abides in the Father. It begins with the gift of love to us from God for Christ and manifests itself in obedience to His commands, which proves we're His disciples. Christ's joy being in us. And when we do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who sits at the right hand of the Father and literally gets between, is an intercessor between our sin and God so that we may truly gnosko, that we may know Him. And not in an intellectual fashion, though there's certainly a lot of intellect involved, but in a very experiential and intimate fashion. And this command that we have that comes from Him, that is a part of this abiding relationship, is both old and in Him, once hidden but now revealed and is therefore new and in us, the new creation. It's crazy to me how you see what Matthew is writing on Sunday morning intersecting what, with what John is writing uh, on, uh, that we're looking at on Sunday nights. This, this idea of Christ being formed in us, us being conformed to His image uh, in such a way that what was old and in Christ is now revealed and new in us. And today, I want to uh, take a look, if that one wasn't enough from last week, old and in him and new and in you, uh, I want to take a look um, at a section that keeps the high theologians all in a Twitter. This is one of the most kind of high textual debated sections, um, really, of just about any place in the New Testament, and uh, certainly. Uh, within the writings of, um, within the letters of John. So tonight in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, John continues after saying it's old and in him and it's new and in you, and he says this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 
I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Well, if, uh, if you're going to even do just a, a short study on, on John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, immediately you're going to get kind of all of the list of theological conundrums that pop up with this particular section of Scripture. And the list can get pretty long. This is one of those places where a lot of people like to, since there's confusion and a lack of um, cohesion as to, to the meaning at hand, this is a great place to write a dissertation out of. You know, because when, when you look at stuff like Jesus saying, I and the Father are one, they've kind of written all on that topic that any human can think to write. But here's a place where you can find your little niche and, you know, write your dissertation and, and, and get your letters and all of those sorts of things. And so the list gets pretty long, um, but most of them are some fine nuanced version of kind of the main three and so or four and so well three to what we're only three tonight. So so let's just talk about what they are. First of all, there's obviously an abrupt change in style. You can see it just by looking at the page. It physically looks different. And John moves from from writing in 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 simple prose to instead to a style that's very rhythmic, almost poetic or lyrical, which is very definitively not John's style. Now, if Paul did this, that would be pretty normal. He does that stuff. Paul's the kind of preacher that in the middle of the, pre the preaching will break out into a verse of amazing grace, right? I mean, he does that all the time. You see that consistently through his epistles. This is not something that John does, and people have suggested different reasons for this. They say, well, you know, maybe it was kind of a, a common verse amongst the early Christian church that they would say to each other as a form of liturgy or encouragement or those sorts of things. And maybe John adopts that. Maybe so. If it is, we've never found it anywhere else um, that's period to the time. And then you get kind of the nut and flake crowd that will say, oh, this isn't John. This is a later addition to the text and higher textual criticism. Therefore, it's not authoritative, all that sort of thing. Um, the other thing, the technical thing, is there is a definite change between verses 12 and 13 when you hit 14. The way that, that John is speaking about what he writes, he, he, he switches from the present tense to the aorist tense. You don't see it um, in, the, in the English here, but you probably should. Basically, he says in 12 and 13, I am writing to you, I am writing to you, and I am writing to you. It ought to switch in verse 14 to I wrote to you. Because in the English, the only way we have to indicate an aorist tense is, is to use the past tense. It's probably not completely accurate, but it's, it gets the idea across. Um, I got a question to ask as soon as I cover one more, and you're probably thinking it right now. Uh, then the last question would be this. Who are the fathers, the young men, and the children referring to? You know, is this referring to, to people of different physical ages? Is this referring to people of different spiritual maturity? Is this referring to different positions in the church? Are the fathers the leaders and the young men, you know, the up and coming and the little children, the ones that are just starting off? And so you ask those three questions and I'll, I'll, I'll ask what everybody else is thinking. Does any of this matter? Right? Does any of that matter? <laughs> 
And to be completely fair, I guess to some degree you have to say, well, yes, it does. I mean, it's, there are questions that the text produces. But if we're going to be honest, those questions probably did not matter a lot to the first century reader that was reading this text. And I don't think they mattered because I don't think that was John's point. So let's, let's take a minute to kind of look at the verbiage, or in this case, literally the verbs, because there's a bunch of them right here in just three different verses. And so it looks like this. In verse 12, the first verb, if we, if we don't look at the I am writing to you verbs, okay, we'll leave those out, and just go to the ones that's speaking to the audience. So John says, I'm writing to you, and this is what I'm writing to you about what you were doing. I'm writing to you, first, little children, because your sins are forgiven. He's writing to them because of the reality that their sins are forgiven. He's speaking to them about salvation. This is, you know, Acts chapter 10 kind of stuff. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him forgives. Uh, he received... Uh, I butchered it. Let me start over. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There you go. Why am I writing to you? Because your sins are forgiven. Verse 13, there's, uh, there's three here in verse 13 alone. He says, I'm writing to you because you know Christ. I'm writing to you specifically fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. This is exactly who John was talking about in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, when he says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. He says, man, I am writing to you because you know, you gnosko, you are intimate with Jesus Christ. And so, verse 12, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven, definitive of salvation. I'm writing to you, verse 13a, because you are intimate in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. A.K.A. salvation, your sins are forgiven. Verse 13b, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have, here's the ver verb, overcome the evil one. You've overcome, literally conquered. Scripture tells us this is the activity of the saved. Romans chapter 12, verse 21, Paul writes and says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This concept of conquering is so tied to the identity of the saints that in the epistles of Christ, in the first three chapters of Revelation, Christ will use a format that says over and over and over, do this, and to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, I will give you a particular, it's different in each different church, I will give you a particular symbol, give you a particular testimony of that salvation. So your sins are forgiven, salvation. Know Christ, be intimate in your knowledge of Christ, salvation. You have overcome the, um, the activity of the saved. Verse 13c, I write to you children because you know the Father. Kind of see the interplay that's going back and forth here. You know the Father. Once again, gnosko. The verb's the same. This is intimate knowledge. This is what he was talking about just up the page in verse 5, about halfway through, it's a bad break, where he says in, in 1 John 2, 5, by this we know that we are in him. By this we, gnosko, by this we have 
experiential knowledge that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You know the Father. Salvation. Verse 14, um, verse 14a. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. This is an exact restatement and therefore a reinforcement. That's the way it works. It works this way in just about any language. It's certainly true in the Greek. Man, you start repeating yourself. It's because you're trying to drive home a, a point. This is a restatement of verse 13. Man, you know him. You know him who is from the beginning. You know Christ. Verse 14b is fascinating. And I think this is the one, if you're starting to kind of smell the beans cooking, so to speak, I think verse 14b is the one that, that really kind of says, yeah, the soup's on boil. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. Now, strong's the adjective. It describes what you are. And what you are is ime, which are can get used in kind of a lot of loose ways in the English, but when you say the word ime in the Greek, it specifically speaks to being and the reality of existence. As a matter of fact, when quoting uh, in, in the Septuagint out of Genesis or Exodus, out of Exodus, when the Lord tells Moses, I am that I am, it's ime that he uses to speak of his own existence. He says, ego ime, I am. And so John writes to them and he says, you exist, you are, you be, and the thing that you be is strong. He doesn't quit there. And verse 14c in the, in the, four, or in the third verb, he says, the word of God abides in you. You abide specifically in the Word of God. And once again, according to chapter 2, verse 4, this is the very definition of salvation. Whoever says, I know him, whoever says, I gnosko him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know, we gnosko, that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And finally, in verse 14, the last verb in the series, you have once again overcome, you have conquered the evil one. A restatement and a reinforcement of 13b. And so, if you take all of those together, they say this, you're forgiven, you know Christ, you have overcome you know the Father, you know Christ, you have being, you abide, you have overcome. It's amazing how clear the point starts to become when you remove all of the window dressing, if you will. I write to you for this reason. You're forgiven. You know Christ. You've overcome. You know the Father. You know Christ. You have, a, you have being. You abide and you have overcome. Now let me tell you what 1 John chapter 2, verses 12-14 through 14 is really about. 
what it's really about. And this is why earlier I said it's important you go, well, yes, it is important. It's in the text. You want to you want to exegete it, you want to analyze it, but what we're looking for here is meaning. This is the, the most simple hermeneutic in the world that you know, vocabulary and grammar combine in context to convey meaning. Meaning is what we're after. We want to know what God wanted us to know. Let me tell you, these three verses, they're not about age, they're not about spiritual maturity, and they're not even, I don't believe, about being fathers versus young men versus little children. That is to say, I don't believe that this is written about males. At least not specifically. Certainly written to males. It's not about them. All of that is way too convoluted. Look, if you look at this, this is a, if you try to analyze it from that respect, it is convoluted and so repetitive. If, if the order of delineation is the point, then John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, did a very poor job of conveying what that delineated order was. Because he just keeps looping back on himself. So many of the blessings are the same for all of them. He repeats some of the blessings directly to the same audience that he spoke to before, and they all boil down to one thing, and that's the blessing and the benefits of salvation. It's not about the order of delineation. John and the Holy Spirit don't do a sloppy job. Especially when you consider that in his gospel, John is considered to be the apostle of the, the, the champion of order. Like we use the gospel of John to understand the order of events that occur in the synoptic gospels. John is one of the grand kind of timekeepers that says it happened in this manner where this happened first and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened where the other Gospels, they write in order sometimes but they're much more thematic in nature. Now that's not John. He's trying to get to another point. And I think you find it, kind of the nail, if you will, that tacks it down, the thing that you kind of already suspect the one thing that every single one of these verbs have in common all the way from 12 to 14 is that they're all indicative, which means that they're real. They're real. None of this is theoretical, nor is it even being presented simply as a future possibility. He's not saying, listen boys, I'm writing to you because you could know the one who is from the beginning. Hey, I'm writing to you so that you can come to be strong. Hey, hey I'm, I, I'm writing to you so that you might be forgiven. That is not what he's saying. He's saying it, it, it's, it's not theoretical. It's not possible in the future. It is something that is a concrete reality right now. This is who these people are. They do know the Son. They do know the Father. They are forgiven. They are being, and their being is strong. They have overcome. They've conquered. This is their identity. As a matter of fact, everything John writes to them is about the identity of being a member of the body of Jesus Christ. And when you consider that, in light of what the Gnostics have been trying to poison them with, it makes perfect sense. 
look what John insinuates the Gnostics have been pressing, and history would bear this out. This is exactly what they were pressing. In John chapter 1, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Because you had a group of people that were claiming that the spirit was righteous and the body was evil, and that you, your spirit could walk in Christ and your body could go do whatever it wanted to. John says that's not the case. In verse 8 of chapter 1, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This is not a duality that coexists with itself, but it is something that is completely different. In verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. John chapter 2 or it was in chapter 2. Oops. In John chapter 2, let's back up to verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments and is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John says, man, if you say you know him, if you say you gnosko him, then, then there is evidence of that in keeping his commandments. Again, in verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. It is a new commandment. Chapter 1, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And all of that stuff is exactly what the Gnostics were saying. They were saying you can have Jesus and you can have the world. It doesn't have to be one or the other. The spirit can have Christ and the body can walk in the flesh. And all of that's okay because God made it. Here's the secret knowledge that nobody knows. God made it in such a way where the two are separate from each other and they have no commonality. And John says that's not true. And in the midst of this attack, when you have some guys that historically proved to be very wickedly intelligent... I mean, Gnosticism didn't just go away. It flourished of its own accord for a time, and like we said, much of it has been in, much of it today has been folded in and incorporated into the baked cake that ended up being the Catholic Church. When when you're there and you're being pressured and, and heresy is at your door and, and you are being pressed hard and, and you don't have an apostle camped out, you know, in town at that moment to tell you what is true and you don't have the backlog of all of the things and all of the benefits and the resources that we as the church 2,000 years later have today. And having an apostle write to you when you got these people telling you, look, you, there's no way you can actually know your identity in Christ. The Spirit is so separate from the flesh. you got an apostle writing to you and going, listen, guys, I'm going to tell you this stuff. I'm going to give you the theology. And then what I'm going to do is encourage you. You are forgiven. You know Christ. You have overcome. You know the Father. You know Christ. You have being in Him. You abide. You've overcome. Let me tell you something. When you're having people that are having a crisis of faith, when you're having people that are getting shaky and getting on the bubble, the thing you ask them primarily 
is is not what you do what you believe not not what is your theology um, not not what have you done to address this the first thing you ask them is who are you who are you what's your identity and is it evident this is their identity this is why he's writing to them he's not writing to them he's not writing to them primarily as an evangelical outreach they are saved people and he's writing to remind them of that, encourage them of that, and to keep them from stumbling into error. He writes to them because if you believe what the Gnostics believe, it makes it very easy to comfort yourself as long as the sun is shining outside. But the moment that hardship comes, there is no way to meaningfully connect the spirit to the physical reality that we live. And John says there is. There is a way. And you understand where that leaves you is in this just kind of ethereal, free-floating place where you can't be sure, and I can't know that I know. And John says, no, you can know that you know. Who are you? What's your identity? What's your being? This is why I write to you. Because it's what, true, it's what is true of you. And you should know it. And if you know it, you'll be it. It's not about old men, middle-aged men, and young men. It's about the men, the women, the boys, and the girls that belong to the kingdom and what it means to belong. All right.